This week on the Iowa Watch Connection. It's certainly very nice, but uh, the day after you win one, you go back to work. And, and uh, I think it's recognized as a significant uh, achievement in journalism, whether you deserved it or didn't. He is an Iowa native who made his way to New York, but won his Pulitzer after coming back home. It's uh, not as good as it was. On the other hand, there's some great uh, social media journalism. There's great internet journalism. There's some good broadcast journalism. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's always good journalism and there's always bad journalism. A Pulitzer for editorials, our topic this week. The Iowa Watch Connection is presented by the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism. Online at iowawatch.org. Here is Jeff Stein. We've been sharing the stories of Iowa's proud journalistic heritage with you on our program this year. Now the third in our trio of profiles of Iowa-based Pulitzer Prize winners. Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism Executive Director and Editor Lyle Muller has our story. In his office behind the grandstands on the third base side of Principal Park in Des Moines, Michael Gartner can show you a few treasures. There's the wine glass that Hall of Fame baseball player Ryan Sandberg gave him. Sandberg is a former manager of the Iowa Cubs AAA baseball team that Gartner owns. Baseball-related photos are on the wall, too, as are photos of Gartner's father along with other memorabilia. And there's that Pulitzer Prize that Gartner, known best for his decorated career in journalism, won in 1997 for editorial writing while he was editor and co-owner of the Ames Tribune. More on that later. Gartner's career includes time at the Wall Street Journal, also as editor of the Des Moines Register, which won some Pulitzers while he was there, the Louisville Courier-Journal as well, in addition to the Ames Tribune. He has been a news executive at USA Today and the Gannett Company that owns it and the Register. He's been president of the American Society of News Editors and president of NBC News. Also, he served on the Pulitzer Prize board from 1982 to 1992. That experience took him behind the scenes with the prizes that are 100 years old this year. How do you pick a winner when so many submissions are qualified? What rules exist for determining a winner? He got the inside skinny on that. On an off day for the iCubs, we sat down with Michael Gartner at the ballpark and we asked questions. Is the Pulitzer Prize important? Can you put that into perspective, that importance? Is it an inside award for just journalists to care about or, to, or should the public care? The last year you're on the board, you're automatically the president of the board. You have been, at least since Joe Pulitzer retired. And so it was my 10th year and I was the president. That also happened to be the 75th anniversary of the founding of the Pulitzer Prizes. So there was this huge uh, event up at Columbia, a huge dinner in which every living Pulitzer Prize winner uh, was invited and I think most of them showed up. And Russell Baker, the great columnist for the New York Times, gave the speech. Uh, and he was a very witty man and a very a wonderful man. And he got up, and he's this tall, kind of lanky guy, and he looked out over the audience and kind of touched his chin and looked out. And he says, I know the first line of the obituary of every person in this room. <laughs> and everybody laughed because that's the way it, way it goes, you know. And Joe Smith who won the Pulitzer Prize for X in 1952, died yesterday in Macon, Georgia. I mean, it's, it's an obituary changer. Uh, 
beyond that, I don't know. It's uh, it's nice. It's it's certainly very nice. But uh, the day after you win one, you go back to work, and and uh, uh, yeah, I think it's recognized as a, a, a significant uh, achievement in journalism, whether you deserved it or didn't. Uh, sure, it's a nice thing. Is it something the public can relate to? Do you think? I think so. I think that it's. Uh, it's become uh, automatic over these uh, hundred years now. Uh, people know what it is, the Pulitzer Prize. Half the people mispronounce it as Pulitzer, but uh, it's, uh, uh, yeah, it's, I think it's recognized, and I think certainly within the uh, newspaper and communications industries, it's well recognized. What comprises a good Pulitzer Prize winning? Oh, I don't know. You know, that's piece. a great question. The, the board, it's one, the, being on the board is most, one of the most interesting things I've ever done in my life, and I've had a pretty interesting life. You're told what the finalists are. There's a series of juries that they, they get three to five finalists in every category, including uh, arts and literature. And, and you're told about six weeks before, I guess, the meeting, what they are, and, and they send you a book with every entry, in it, and, then, and they send you every book. Uh, so you read three novels, three biographies, three histories, three books of poetry, three general nonfiction. Uh, and you have to weigh those. It's, a lot of times it's very hard to compare. And uh, then you go through all the journalism and all the categories until you're just uh, eyes glaze over. And then you, you're pretty sure you know, though, what it is. And then you go in and you meet with these people. And uh, they're smart people and they're interesting people and there's no shrinking violets. And, and uh, you start debating. It's a very civilized, very, very, very civilized debate. And anybody who's from a newspaper or a chain who has something under discussion has to leave the room. So there's no lobbying. There's no, there's no taking care of friends or anything. There's just this pure debate. And uh, I mentioned Russell Baker. I used to th think, uh, oh, this novel is for sure. And then I'd go and I'd listen to him dissect the three novels and say why Lonesome Dove should be the winner instead of something else. And you think, why didn't I think that? Why aren't I that smart? That, I mean, that guy is so brilliant in the way he dissects it and everything, and, and how could I have been so wrong? And, and there's the same way with poetry or, or music uh, or, or things like that. People, uh, so there's this uh, vigorous but absolutely civilized, uh, courteous debate, uh, uh, argument back and forth, and then there's a real vote. Uh, and no votes the first day uh, are solid. I mean, you vote the first day, then you meet the second day, and you've had a chance to uh, think things over, to talk, talk them over, uh, and then the next day is the you debate again, and then the real vote. So, so it's as pure a process as I've ever seen uh, in my life in anything. And, and I'm convinced that uh, at the end, at least on the 10 years I was on it, at the end that the right people won. Uh, once there was a great debate uh, between two different kinds of books, and I always regretted that we didn't give it to both of them, because they were both great books. Uh, the Loser was uh, the biography of Thomas E. Dewey, which was a great book. Uh, and, but it was totally different from The Winner. And uh, uh, that's the only thing I ever thought, ah, we blew it on that one. Does the vote come down to majority rule? Or yes. Oh, you bet. You bet. And once, once I was, uh, I thought for sure I was on the winning side on one. And they're, they're often very close, you know. It's not, so, I mean, sometimes there's a lay down, but often they're very close and, and these rigorous debate. And I thought for sure that uh, the side I was on had, had won it. 
and I got all done, and I looked around, and the president of Columbia University, who's always a member, and at that time was a guy named Mike Sovereign, he came up to me, and he looked at me, and he says, you know, Gartner, he says, you're a hell of a journalist, he says, but you can't count votes. <laughs> Coming up, a very personal side of this Pulitzer winner. That's next as the Iowa Watch Connection continues. This program is part of the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative, a joint venture of the Pulitzer Prize's board, the Federation of State Humanities Council, and Humanities Iowa, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities, in celebration of the 2016 centennial of the prizes. The initiative seeks to illuminate the impact of journalism and the humanities on American life today, to imagine their future, and to inspire new generations to consider the values represented by the body of Pulitzer Prize-winning work. For their generous support for the Campfires Initiative, we thank the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the Ford Foundation, Carnegie Corporation of New York, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Pulitzer Prizes Board, and Columbia University, as well as Humanities Iowa and the National Endowment for the Humanities. The program is produced in the studios of KXEL Radio in Waterloo. The Iowa Watch Connection radio program is part of a statewide audience engagement project organized by the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, an independent, nonprofit, nonpartisan news organization. The center is dedicated to producing high-quality investigative and community affairs journalism in Iowa, while also training journalism students to do this work at a high ethical level. The center is found online at iowawatch.org. Welcome back to the Iowa Watch Connection. I'm Jeff Stein. We continue now with our profile of an Iowa-based Pulitzer Prize Award winner who won for commentary on local issues. Here again is Lyle Muller. Michael Gartner and Gary Gerlach bought the Ames Tribune in the 1980s. With Gartner handling the journalism, Gerlach the business, and David Bellin serving as a silent partner. In 1997, this small local newspaper won the coveted Pulitzer Prize. Only two other Iowa newspapers other than the Des Moines Register had done so until the Tribune. They were the Cedar Rapids Gazette in 1936 for public service and the Atlantic News-Telegraph in 1934 for E.P. Chase's editorials. Gartner's editorials at the Tribune covered a variety of local issues ranging from where signs should be put to a proposed lap-dancing law. The Pulitzer Board said he won, quote, for his common-sense editorials about issues deeply affecting the lives of people in his community. He wrote about matters involving local government, right. which we would expect from a, an editorial page, but you also weighed in on business decisions. Uh, at a Lowe's coming, or no, was it a Lowe's? The, uh, I believe it was. This has been a long yeah, time ago. Yeah, that was the know. Lowe's store going into the neighborhood where people had the veto power over whether or not the store could be there, or come and go and their signs and where they wanted to locate. Yeah, I wrote a lot about stuff like that, about sign ordinances, and, and Ames had this wonderful ordinance that you couldn't put a sign on a rock, and I was always making fun of that. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, these are the things that affect people's people's lives every, every day, uh, uh, whether it's a uh, 
an ordinance against lap dancing, or whether it's a, a sign ordinance, or whether it's a, a zoning a zoning issue, or a widening of a street. Again, I mean, uh, the fact of the matter is that affects them more than the war in Afghanistan, and and uh, it affects their daily lives. Uh, and so, you want to explore the issue, and then you want to kind of come down on where you think it ought to be, given the given the overall. Uh, makeup of the town, of where we are, of who we are, of our history, and, and things like that. So in a little bit, you're kind of a historian, and you're kind of a commentator, and you're kind of a mom, uh, and you're uh, kind of a, the one thing you don't want to be is a common scold. Uh, you just don't want to be that. But uh, sometimes you're a teacher, and uh, sometimes you're a comedian, you know? You were also the co-owner of the paper. I was. And so, talk to us a little bit about your philosophy about the potential business relationship with businesses. Oh, I had this wonderful partner named Gary Gerlach, who ran the business side. David Bellin uh, owned a third of it too, but he was what most people would call a silent partner. But he was David. If you knew David, he was never anything but silent. But he was a wonderful partner. But Gary ran the business side, circulation and advertising and production and everything. And he spent about a third of his time going around uh, trying to smooth over things, but he knew that was part of his job, and I knew part of my job was uh, to uh, uh, tell people what was going on, and if that offended people, uh, and you know, sometimes people would cancel their advertising, but my view was always, well, you shouldn't be advertising with the paper because of our editorial position. You ought to be advertising with us because we reach your customers, or you can get your message or something, and if you're advertising with us because of our editorial position, you're not spending your money very smart. And you probably shouldn't be advertising with us. And I think that was Gary's position too. Although he would always, uh, uh, as I say, he was great at smoothing things over, but uh, never apologizing and never ever saying, "Gee, Michael, I wish you hadn't have done that" or anything. Uh, and uh, a lot of times he wouldn't even know what was what I was going to be writing about. Uh, he liked surprises. You mentioned the lap dancing. Do you remember what all of that was about? Oh yeah, yeah. there was a Tell us about there it. was a, an ordinance. Uh, banning lap dancing in uh, in Ames, and uh, if you read the ordinance, if you, it was a kind of a goofy ordinance, and uh, so it didn't make any sense. And so I wrote this argument that said this editorial that said lap dancing is a First Amendment right, uh, that is a form of form of speech. But but the real the real issue was about what's the intent. Who knows what the intent? Who knows what the intent of the woman is or the guy there? You know, and it was just a stupid ordinance. Uh, so I wrote uh, a mildly amusing uh, editorial uh, editorial about it. Uh, I can't remember what I compared it to, but uh, but it was one of the ones the, the Pulitzer jury cited, the Pulitzer people cited. Uh, that's why I remember it. But I, I kind of enjoyed it. Some, you know, you know. Sometimes you write something, you just kind of. Smile to yourself. Say, I kind of like that line, and there were a couple lines in that that I kind of liked. I don't remember them today, but I, I remember liking them. The editorials that were in the package that won the Pulitzer seemed to have a pattern, and that was to find the problem, do some reporting, but also offer solutions. Sure, sure. You got to. You've got to. I mean, why just like I said, why be a common scold? I mean, uh, uh, try to work for uh, for what you consider to be the betterment of the community or try to propose what you believe would be a solution uh, to the problem. I mean, my solutions were usually uh, at odds with uh, 
University of Iowa solutions, you know, I mean, Iowa State University solutions. Uh, you know, they, uh, they had a guy working in the kitchen who had tattoos. And so uh, on, uh, I think it was a swastika or something, and so they said you couldn't work there. And I said that was a matter of free, free speech and, and uh, that, uh, you know, you just don't do that and you use that as an educational uh, moment rather than as a suppression moment. But uh, so my solutions uh, sometimes were not uh, fully in line with the community's solutions, but that's the way it was. Speaking of Iowa State, you also called in October of 1996 for Leonard Goldman's resignation. Yeah as director of the Iowa State University Research Park, which he did, effective January 1st, 1997, and that was announced in a December 31st news release. Do you think the editorial had anything to do with that, or was that resignation on I track? No, I have no idea. I wasn't part of the inner workings of the, uh, of the uh, university or its research park. One of the most heartfelt editorials that you wrote was about your son, Christopher whom you called the most joyous boy who ever lived. And you wrote this in December of 1996. It was the Christmas editorial. Right. Um, and Christopher died June 30th, 1994, at the age of 17 of juvenile diabetes. Right. Why did you write that editorial? It was Christmas, and you think about family. And, and uh, uh, it just seemed like a nice thing to say. So I did. Uh, easy to write. Easy to write, you know, it just flows. Uh, hard to think about still, but easy to write. Uh, now usually, uh, you know, when you have a child who dies, and that's been uh, uh, 94, that's been, you know, he's been dead 22 years, longer than he lived. Uh, but you still think about him 30, 40 times a day. Uh, and, uh, uh, it still shapes your life. Uh, so I, uh, I don't know why I wrote about it, but I did, and I'm glad I did. This is part of what you wrote. Our purpose surely is evident to urge you to have fun this holiday season with your kids or your parents or both, to urge you to sit around and tell family stories as two or three or sometimes four generations gather at the table to share in the laughter and to urge you to tell one another, the young and the old and the very old, that your family is a pretty nice family to share in the love, even then an inclusion of a solution in yeah. your opinion piece. That's a little different side than the tough editorial writer taking on city council or Iowa well, State. Well, you know, you have to, have to mix your pitches. <laughs> but it, like I say, it was a natural, and, and you think of family at Christmas, and, if you had a son who died that year, you particularly uh, uh, tuned to it and uh, uh, think back of the wonderful memories. And, and uh, you know, when you have a child who dies, the uh, if you have a friend of a child who dies, nobody can understand it unless it happened. And the greatest thing you can hope for is that the good memories drive out the bad memories quickly. Uh, and eventually they do, you know, some, maybe it'll be a year, maybe it'll be 15 years, maybe it'll be 20 years, but ultimately when you think back, you think first of the joyful things, uh, the times you did things together, the funny things, the times you learned to ride a bike or tie a shoe or, or uh, play catch or go on a trip or, or things like that. So the, 
95% of your memories at, at some point are happy memories. And, uh, and that day I had happy memories. And, and uh, so they just kind of poured out. Are we still seeing good journalism in Iowa? Sure, sure. Uh, not to the extent that, well, first of all, to find journalism, I mean print journalism, uh, not as much as there was. There's fewer reporters. There's less space. There's uh, different ownership. Uh, there's not the uh, institutional memory at a lot of places. I mean, the other day, the Burlington paper was sold. Uh, it had been in the same ownership since the 1940s, and it was, a, over the years, a good, strong paper with good, strong editors. Uh, so, sure, there's good journalism in pockets, but a lot of places, they're, they're just glorified shoppers. These big chains have bought them, and, and uh, there's no local... Uh, uh, there's no local kind of history. There's no local. There's no memory. There's no memory uh, in those places. Uh, so it's uh, not as good as it was. On the other hand, there's some great uh, social media journalism. There's great internet journalism. There's some good broadcast journalism. Uh, so yeah, there's there's always good journalism and there's always bad journalism. What do you think uh, you'll be defined as? You've done a lot of well, things. That's, that's not up to me to, uh, to determine. I hope that uh, my kids define me as a good father and my wife as a good husband. And beyond that, anybody else can make uh, whatever, uh, whatever judgments they want to make. I can give you a list of people who make various kind of judgments if you want them. <laughs> but still, your obituary will lead with... Michael Gartner. <laughs> well, surprise. Yeah, if, if there is no obituary, you know, I, I always liked Luther Hill's obituary. Uh, Luther Hill was a great man around town and was a director of the Register and Tribune for many years when I was there. Uh, he died and the obituary said, just said Luther Hill then said, Luther Hill is dead. And uh, the second sentence said, there will be no services. So I was talking to his wife. I said, Luther wrote that himself, didn't he? And she says, well, we had to add the second line. <laughs> And that brings to a close this week's program. We're back again next week at this same time. And you can let us know your thoughts about this program or suggest ideas for future programs by email. The address is radio at iowawatch.org. I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks for joining us. And we hope you'll make the Iowa Watch Connection again next week. The Iowa Watch Connection is a copyrighted presentation of the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, which is solely responsible for its content. For more information about the center, including how you can contribute so high-quality investigative and community affairs journalism and student training can continue, go online, iowawatch.org.